Well, we're still in Ruth this morning, but we're not moving forward in Ruth, if that makes sense, I'll explain. After last month, we, we finished chapter 2, and it was probably moments after finishing chapter 2, I thought to myself, you know, I wish I, I, I would have taken more time thus far, you know, in Ruth, chapters 1 and, and chapter 2, and, and I hadn't really thought that until that point that I had finished. And, and over the past month, as, as I continued to read and, and study Ruth and to, to really just ponder the text that we've, we've examined so far, I, I know, right, and, and there's always more to the story, right, and there is, and, and, and we're only allotted so much time in, in life, let alone on Sunday mornings or whenever it is we gather, but I know that there's so much more to the story, and I don't want to miss any of it. Not not just in Ruth, but in all of Scripture. I don't I don't want to miss it. You know, I don't want you to miss it. I hope you don't want to miss it either. And over the past month, as I as I just continued to contemplate um, just this text and contemplate where we're going next in in chapter in chapter three. You know, we we began in chapter one in the first part of chapter one. Uh, oh, we talked about sorrow in Moab, right? The sorrow that. That Naomi and and Ruth had experienced through the loss of their their husbands, right? And we moved from there to the the second part of chapter one, and we considered um, the sovereign God of Ruth as He was working out all of these things that were happening, as He was causing them to happen, allowing them to happen, and, and doing so for for His glory and for their good. Last month, chapter two, we examined the providential God of Ruth, how how God divinely cares for, in, in, in the case of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, but, but us as well. And where we're going in, in chapter 3, we're going to consider uh, the redemptive God of Ruth. But as I was thinking back this past month on these, these three sermons and looking forward to, to chapter 3, I started to think, hey, wait a minute, what about, what about the gracious the gracious God of Ruth, because this, this, this story from the very first verse all the way to the very last verse, and, and I mean that literally, right? We could, we could examine it, right? The very first verse to the very last verse um, in the book of Ruth is completely permeated with God's grace. And so this morning, that's what I want to look at. That's what we're going to look at, examine, is the gracious God of Ruth. And we're going to do that primarily by reviewing, recapping, if you will, what we've already examined in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. Now, as we do that, or, or before we do that, right, I want to give you just some basic definitions. Let's talk about grace first. What, what is what is grace? So before we talk about the gracious God of Ruth, let's talk about what, what grace is. Basic definition, grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited. It's, it's unearned, right? It's undeserved. The fact is, is, is if you could earn it, if you deserve it, then it's not grace. 
Okay? So if there's something in life, and we can just go, go general here, right? If there's something in life that you deserve, or you think you deserve anyway, right? Because I, I think that's typically the case. We think we deserve things, but actually we don't deserve anything that we think we deserve, right? But you, if you think you deserve it, or if you deserve it, right? Um, or if you have earned it, right? It's not grace, right? I work for a paycheck. My employer pays me because I provide them with a service, right? It's pay. It's not grace, right? I earn it, okay? So if it's earned, right? If it's deserved, then it's not grace. Again, grace is unmerited, unearned, unworked for, undeserved favor. Now we have what we call common grace. I know some of you are familiar with that term. Well, common grace we'll talk about, and then um, saving grace. Common grace is grace that God extends to all mankind. Let's look at Matthew. We're going to look at some scripture here that proclaims right, God's common grace for, for all of mankind. Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verse 45b. For he, God, right? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a picture of common grace. We had a drought this summer. We had one last summer, right? We're all intimately aware of that, right? And then as fall came and God brought the rain back, right? A picture in our lives of God's common grace, right? Something that affected all of us. Believers, right? Who were affected by the drought. Unbelievers who were affected by the drought, right? God's favor. God's unmerited favor. Again, in a common way, right? God gives common grace in that he sustains all of creation. Let's start in, um, we'll start with John. John 1. John 1, verses um, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word. Right? We know speaking of the Son, right? Christ Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? Now, all things were made through Him, through Christ, through Jesus, the, the eternal Son, right? All things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. That's, that's grace right there, period, because nothing, nothing deserves to be made. Right? You, as a person, were made specifically by the Son. It's what, it's what it says. You didn't deserve to be made, created. You don't deserve now that life. Again, a picture an example of God's common grace for all mankind. And it says, Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's look at 
Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says he, again of the Son, I'll let you turn there, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Again, for by him, all things, that's you, that's me, that's, that's everything, for by him, all things were created. Again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on the earth. That's right, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, right? He is before all things, here we go, and in him all things what? Hold together. He is actively sustaining all of creation the just, right? The unjust, the wicked, the righteous, non-believers, those who will die in their sin apart from him and those whom he has saved, those whom he will save, he is now, at this moment, actively sustaining us. Us here, all of us, the world. Again, it's God's common grace. God's common grace extends also to the restraint of sin and the restraint of evil in this world. Let's look at Romans um, Romans 13. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, here's the thing. Some of us might argue this, right? I mean, we look at our government, right? And we want to talk about this in a governmental perspective. Yes, God ordains government, and he ordains government, right, for the purpose of restraining evil, punishing evil, and protecting, if you will, um, uh, uh, the upright, okay? But, but the point is this, right? God, right, even through our wicked government, I said it, right? God is restraining evil. That is, yes, it can be, and it could be, way worse than it is. Right? It's going to get worse, I believe that, but it could still be way worse than what it is, right? So we know that God, God restrains evil through the use of, of government, right? But, but he also restrains evil and restrains sin, right? Supernaturally, if you will, okay? And again, that is another example of God's common grace. I mean, just, just imagine if God did just, just start it all, right? And then just completely let go and let everything up to man and just completely withdrew his his sovereignty from from the world 
and his providence and his care and his protection, how, how wicked would this place be? Right? We would probably have already destroyed ourselves. Right? Again, God's common grace. Also, flip back from Romans 12 to Romans chapter 2. Um, verses 12 through 16 um, says this, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God has given every human being a conscience, right? He has written his law on our hearts, right? Talked about momentary uh, moments ago, right? God restraining evil, restraining sin. One of the ways that he does that is what? The conscience that he gave, that he gave us, right? Again, another example of God's common grace. Also, then we have God's just, I put down providential blessings. I was outside the other day working. I was watching my youngest son play and I was and I was as, and I as I was excuse me doing that I was I was praising God right for the immense blessing that it is to have children and just to be able to watch my son enjoy life right specifically as a believer knowing right that that gift the gift of a father the gift of, of being able to watch my son play and enjoy life and to grow and and to learn right Seeing that, knowing that that blessing comes directly from God and just being able to just truly in, enjoy it, right? And think back to the birth of my children. If you're a parent, right, you can think back to the births of your children and the joy that it is, right, to, to, uh, to, to, to have children, to see your child born, right? We know unbelievers, right, they, they enjoy that too right? God-haters, like, like those who are hardcore atheists, right, can testify what a, an extreme joy it is to have been there for the birth of their children, to be outside working, right, and, and to watch their children play and, and to watch their, their children grow, right? That's, that's again, common grace. Right. Now, now, as a believer, right, we can do that, and we can know right, that that blessing, right, those blessings came from God for, for his glory and for our good. But, but none the yet, nonetheless, again, another example of God's common grace. So, so here's the question, I guess, concerning common grace. Is, is common grace truly grace? Right? I mean, are all these things that we just considered rain, um, right, life, right, the sustenance of, of life, if you will, the restraint of evil, the conscience that God gave us, right, uh, enjoying the blessings of, of family or whatever you want to put in there, right, is that, is that truly grace? See, I think we live 
in, in a world today, and I'm talking about this, this Christian world that we live in, where we think that, that we're owed these things, that we deserve these things, that it's fair that we have these things. Well, of course we have these things because God loves us and he's all about us. And so, of course, he would give these things to us, right? Because that's right. And I think that's the, the trap, right? The mentality that the Christian world falls into, right? You know, these things aren't grace if, again, we deserve it, right? If we've earned it. See, the truth is, this is contrary to the health, wealth, right, happiness, prosperity gospel is that nobody deserves any of this common grace. Nobody deserves health. Nobody deserves wealth. Nobody deserves happiness, right? We don't deserve health, okay? Think about this for, for just a moment, right? Sickness, this is, this is hard, and I'm just, I'm prefacing this, okay, because I've been thinking about this, this all week, and it might be a tough pill to swallow, but sickness is truly better than what we deserve. We don't deserve wealth. In fact, poverty, extreme poverty, is better than what we deserve. We don't deserve happiness. Deep sorrow, extreme sorrow, and sadness is better than what we deserve. Now, first let me say this. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to guilt you into feeling bad for the times that you have more than you need, right? That, that, that you don't have need, but you have gain, right? And that you're not sick, but you're healthy. And that you're not sad, but you're happy. I'm not saying this, right, to guilt you into feeling bad for these things. I'm saying this, right, so you'll cry out to God in praise for the blessings that he has bestowed on us, for this common grace that he has extended to us because we don't exerve, deserve his common grace. We don't deserve his saving faith. We don't deserve anything good. But what we deserve is God's immediate and unending wrath. Isaiah 64, 6. You can turn there if you'd like. Most of us are familiar with it, right? Regarding man's righteousness. It says that our, our righteousness, our goodness, like the good, the, the, the most good that we could ever muster up, it's like a filthy garment. That our good, is utter filth before and compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. We deserve his wrath. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. This is God, after creating Adam and Eve, giving them instructions as to what they are to do and what they're not to do. He says, she'll start in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, commanded Adam, right? We're talking about Adam here, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God told Adam that if you eat of this fruit, if you, if you disobey me, okay, and that day you will die spiritually. You will experience an immediate, that moment of sin, you will experience an immediate spiritual death. Uh, not, not just a separation from me, right? Because that's what Adam experienced. It was an immediate separation from God. But now not only was Adam not immediately separated from God, Adam at that moment being spiritually dead was now incapable incapable in and of himself of any spiritual good. Adam would be spiritually dead at that moment. And at that moment that he and Eve sinned, right, they died spiritually immediately. Now, they didn't die physically at that moment, but the process for Adam and for Eve, right, of spiritual death began. Now, Romans 6.23, we know that, right? For the wages of sin is death. Again, spiritual death, physical death, right? We deserve death. The price of sin is death. Adam's sin, our sin. And, and the thing is, is this. It's not just that Adam and Eve, right, in the moment of sinning, deserved death spiritually, which came physical, which began, right? They, they deserved death immediate. That would have been fair. That would have been just. But again, what? God was gracious, right? He, he was merciful and that he didn't give them what they deserved, which was immediate death, not just spiritually, but, but physically, right? So he's merciful in that, but he was also gracious in showing his unmerited favor, right? His unearned favor, unearned favor towards Adam and Eve. God would have been just at the moment of their sin to uncreate, if you will, everything that he has created. So we don't deserve anything in life. We don't deserve life itself. We deserve God's wrath. And again, I don't, I don't say that because I'm, I'm trying to guilt you into feeling bad, okay? Right? I mean, if there's unrepentant sin in your life, <laughs> I want you to be broken over it, and I want you to repent. Right? We talk about these things, so we'll turn to Christ, and we'll turn to God with a grateful heart, praising Him, and thanking Him for His mercy, for His grace. So it's common grace. Common grace. Now, God's saving grace. So that grace, generally, unmerited favor, right? And, and you've all, I say you've all, most of you have probably seen the, what do they call them, acrostic or whatever, where you take a word and spell other words with the word or something like that, if that's what they're called, right? The grace stands for God's uh, riches 
Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard that, maybe maybe not. So, so here's my definition, and, and we'll look at this a little bit and a little bit later after we go back to Ruth and consider God's grace in Ruth. But that saving grace is God's, it's unmerited favor that results in God's riches at Christ's expense. So saving grace, God's, or let's say God's, but unmerited favor, God's unmerited favor that results in God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, God extends his grace, his saving grace, but extends his grace to some to the point that he wills and he works to save them from their sin and from his wrath. That's, that's saving grace. Now let's consider now God's graciousness in Ruth. Now, when we began Ruth, started chapter 1 and we talked about sorrow in Moab. And in chapter 1 it begins that there's a famine, right, in, in Judah, right? Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Right? We talked about how this was God's provision for this family. Right? I mean, there's this, this famine going on in their homeland. They can't eat, right? They can't live, right? Elimelech can't provide for his family, and so God allows them to go to Moab. In fact, God willed it to be so. Took them to Moab. And again, we know that he took them to Moab not just to physically provide for them, but ultimately spiritually provide for them, right? Through Ruth and what would come through Ruth, ultimately Christ, okay? But God taking this family out of this land that there was a famine and putting them in a land where there was abundance, is an example of God's grace. They didn't deserve that. Again, the famine was, was, was better than what they deserved. The summer, this drought that we had was better than what we deserved, right? We got the rain, the rain came, and we're reminded of God's grace, right? Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons were taken from Judah to Moab. And again, it's an example of God's grace and their lives providing for them what they don't deserve. We know that in Moab, God provided two wives for two sons, right? Again, really? I mean, everybody gets married, right? Isn't that just life and what we deserve? No, it's not, right? God providing Ruth for whichever son, and there's some, some argument, you know, behind, well, which, which, you know, Orpah and Ruth, which one was married to which son, Malon or Kilion or Chilion or however you pronounce it, right? I don't know, okay? But it was grace that God provided these these women for them, that God provided Ruth for Naomi, it's grace because they didn't, they didn't deserve it. What about the deaths, right? We know what happened. What happened to Moab, right? Limelech died, right? Two sons got married, right? And the two sons died. Is there, is there grace? Is there grace in that? Now, if you recall when we were, when we were first talking about um, uh, the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, right, and Ruth, 
talked about how God is sovereign over the good things that happen, right? Yeah, everyone wants to proclaim God's sovereign when the good things that happen, right? But we also examine the fact that God is sovereign when the bad things happen. We talked about providence, right? Divine care, right? It's not just being given something, but it's divine care that God is caring for us, right? We talked about God's providence through abundance, right? Again, it's easy to proclaim that God is provident when we're given all this stuff, but we also talked about God's providence through loss and God's providence through need and the lack of things that we need or that we think we need. What about grace, right? His unmerited favor, right? Again, it's easy to proclaim that God is a gracious God when we're given things, stuff, stuff that we want, stuff that we need. But what about when that stuff is taken away? Is God still a gracious God? Is there still grace in that? And the answer is yes. Just as he's still sovereign, just as he's still providential, God is still gracious in need, in lack, and loss. Romans 8.28, right? We know that. God what? He causes all things to happen for the good, right? His glory, we know that. For his glory and for the good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. So, thinking about the gracious God of Ruth, thinking about the sorrow in Moab, okay? God, God caused Elimelech, allowed, caused, okay, whatever, Elimelech and Mahlon and Chilion or Kilion to die. Right? And he allowed it, caused it for his glory, for the good of Naomi, for the good of Ruth, for the good of Boaz, right? And as we continue through the story, for the good of what? All mankind because of the lineage that, that Boaz and, and Ruth would, would, yeah, would, would leave, and which was the line of Christ, right? So God was extremely gracious in allowing those three men to die in Moab. And he was gracious because of what he was doing and what he would do through those deaths. So God was gracious. No, Naomi was sorrowful and Ruth was sorrowful and I think that, that some of it was just, right? And we know that Naomi, you know, she, she had a, a distorted view of what God was doing, right? But sorrow and loss, right? Yeah, that, that, was, that was fine. I think there was some justification to that. But nonetheless, God was gracious in Moab. Now, in chapter 2, we talked about the sovereign God of Ruth, right? Uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter, that was the second sermon. Chapter 1, uh, part B, right? Um, verse 6, and it said what? Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The famine was over. The drought was over, Right? unmerited, unearned favor. They didn't deserve for the drought to be over, right? 
God's, it's God's grace, right? Verse 16 of chapter 1 and 17. If you recall, Naomi is pleading with her daughter-in-laws to stay in Moab. I've got nothing for you, right? I, can't, I don't have another husband. I can't, can't have another son because I don't have another husband. And geez, if I, if, I, if I had another husband or could have a son tonight, I mean, you, you couldn't marry him because you're like way older than he is. I've got nothing for you. Stay, right? We know that Orpah stays. She goes back. But Ruth in verse 16 says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you from where you go, for where you go, sorry. She says, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And we think about grace in Ruth's life, right? God bringing this family. Again, what we have to read into the text here because we don't know a lot, right? Um, but God, we know, brought this family, right? This God-fearing, believing family from Judah to Moab, right? One of the sons marries this Moabitess girl named Ruth. Through that relationship, right, we know that what the gospel, again, the, the Old Testament, what, what was there of the gospel, right, in the Old Testament, right, God's grace, his, his mercy, right, salvation through him was, was proclaimed to Ruth. Possibly, probably, mainly, I, I'm guessing, assuming, believing, through Naomi. So God uses his family to take the good news to this pagan land of Moab, and as a result, he saves this young girl. I mean, if that's not an example of grace, then I don't know what is. So when we just have this, this picture of God's grace in the salvation of Ruth, right? And this is her testimony that we see here, right? This, this what she is saying to Naomi is the fruit, the evidence of her salvation. Now, here's the other thing that we have in this, this section here. Ruth is saying to Naomi, I'm going to stay with you and I'll go wherever you go and I will stay with you until death and where you die, I, I will die. I will not leave you. Now, now, here's the thing. Ruth is extending grace to Naomi. Now, the grace that Ruth is extending to Naomi is a result of the grace that God extended to Ruth. The end of chapter one, Naomi, Naomi and Ruth return to Judah. Again, it's God's grace. He takes her from her homeland to provide for them and so many ways. The, the greatest being the spiritual provision that is coming, right? It's coming like a thousand plus years later, but that's the greatest provision, right? They didn't see it, right? They, they see it now, okay? But God takes this, 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 this woman, Naomi, her family, from, from Judah to Moab to provide for them, 
right? He provides for them his grace. And then he takes Naomi, and the only one left with her, Ruth, to Judah to continue providing for them physically and more importantly, spiritually. Now, God's graciousness in Ruth um, in chapter 2. If you recall chapter 2, we looked at it last time. Um, Ruth and Naomi are now in Judah, right? And while in Judah, um, Ruth goes out, and Naomi kind of sends her, if you will, but she goes out to glean in the fields. And we talked about that last time and what that was, right? We said it was a provision that God had established for the poor, for the destitute, to go into the fields. And after the harvesters had, had harvest and, and grain and stuff had fallen behind and been, had been left behind, right, um, they could come up and pick that grain up off, off the ground. I was thinking about that this week as, as I was out picking up pecans off the ground that had fallen. And though I don't think anyone had gone before me to, to pick pecans from that tree, maybe so. I don't know. Was it my tree, right? It was actually along a roadside somewhere, though. But nonetheless, I was just thinking about that provision that God had, had instituted um, for the poor to come after others who owned the field, but had come after them and to pick up what they were able to pick up, what had been dropped, what had been left, and to do so as a means of provision, right? I mean, that's grace, right? Again, the poor in Israel didn't, didn't deserve that. The, the people that owned the field, I mean, definitely didn't deserve that, right? Didn't deserve to own anything. Didn't deserve a good crop, right? What about the poor? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we live in this, this society that has this, this mentality that, that, you know, um, you know, the haves and the have-nots, but yet we need to reach out to the have-nots and give them what they don't have because they ultimately deserve what they don't have, right? And this, this kind of welfare mentality and this welfare, you know, society. But the truth is, right, the haves don't deserve what they have, what they have, right? The have-nots don't deserve what they don't have. In fact, don't deserve whatever it is that they may even have. Because again, all of us deserve nothing. Don't even deserve, again, life. But nonetheless, God instituted this provision as a means to take care of those in Israel, right? By, by gleaning in the fields, right? And again, that's an example of God's grace towards them. So Ruth, we know, is, is gleaning in this field and as she's gleaning in this field, Boaz, right, the owner of the field, the owner of the portion of this field that she's gleaning in, Boaz comes, right, says, who's this young lady? Uh, one of his, his, his workers says, oh, that's, that's Ruth. Boaz is like, okay, yeah, now I know the story. I'm making the connection, right? And so what does Boaz do, right? He goes to Ruth and he provides for her, doesn't he? He says, glean, glean in my fields, right? Stay, stay here, and I will protect you. Stay here, and I will provide for you. Now, again, let's, let's think about this, right, dynamic. You've got Boaz, right, an Israelite of Judah, right? Again, which is like the tribe of the tribe, you know? I mean, it's like you're not anybody if you're not from Judah, right? Um, and then Ruth, a Moabitess, 
right? The, the, the enemy, right? Again, going back to the first sermon in Ruth, the intro, Sorrow and Moab. I mean, Moab and Israel were like, like the United States and Russia during the Cold War, right? Probably worse than that. And so here you have this, this man who is an Israelite from Judah and this Moabites. And he says, I'll, I'll take care of you. I will provide for you and I will protect you. And it's grace. It's grace that Boaz is showing Ruth, right? Ultimately, it's grace that God's showing Ruth and God's showing and extending to Naomi through Boaz, right? But for Boaz, just for it was um, with Ruth when she extended grace to Naomi, right? Boaz extending grace to Ruth and Naomi is a result of the grace that God has shown Boaz in saving him. Boaz's graciousness towards Ruth again was a reflection ultimately in his life for him of the grace that God had shown him. Now here's the thing. As we consider that, if God has shown us grace, and if you are, first of all, he's shown all of us common grace. If you are a believer, and if you're not a believer, God has shown you grace. But, but believers, since God has shown us grace, how then can we not show grace to others? I mean, we can't. We can't not show grace to others if God has shown us grace. Now, as, as we consider this, I, I want to I point something out when it comes to grace, okay? And, and this, is, this is important, okay? It's important for us in how and when and why we show grace to others. But it's also important when we reflect upon the grace that God has shown us, okay? And it's this. Grace never ignores sin. Grace never ignores sin. If there's anything I want you to remember today, remember that, that grace never ignores sin. And again, remember that in relationship to when we show grace to others, but also the grace that God has shown us. See, I think there are many in Christendom, okay, today that want to want to use statements, and I know you've heard this statement, maybe you've said it yourself, well, I just want to err on the side of grace. What you're really saying is, is I'm going to ignore their sin, okay? And, and just just think about that for a minute. Oh, oh, well, yeah, yeah, he did that, and that, yeah, oh, she's involved in that, or he, they, mm, oh. but you know what? We're just going to err on the side of grace. What's that saying is, is I'm just going to ignore their sin. I, I, I don't want to deal with it. I probably don't want to deal with their sin because I've got the same sin in my life, but I just, we'll just err on the side of grace. Grace never ignore sin. And it's unmerited favor. Nowhere in there does it say it's unmerited favor that ignores sin, right? Saving grace is unmerited favor that results in God's riches at Christ's expense, right? But again, nowhere in there does it allow for uh, ignoring sin. Um, let's look at Matthew 18, right? And we're all familiar, 
we should be familiar. We'll start Matthew 18, um, verse 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go and extend grace. Is that what you're... No. What does it say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Actually, I think that's extending grace. Right? Going to him and confronting that sin. Showing favor for him. Favor because it's your desire to see him or her brought to repentance. That's grace. Ignoring, ignoring sin is not grace. Ignoring sin is, is hatred. God says that if you, if you spare the rod, what? You hate your child. Think about that for a minute. If you spare the rod, you hate your child. If you ignore sin, right, you hate your child. So the thing is, is we can confront sin and still extend grace at the same time. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a, tax, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why? Why, why do this, right? It's a very loving thing. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is a very loving thing. In fact, it's probably the most loving thing you can do for a, a, a brother or a sister, one who professes to be a Christian. The most very loving thing you can do is confront that unrepentant sin because it's your desire to see them brought to repentance and, and to faith. If they're not a believer, see them brought to saving faith, right? If they are a believer, to see that sanctification, that, that, that faith growing in their lives for God's glory and for their good. Also, Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul charges Timothy with reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. It's showing grace. And again, it's showing grace for what is accomplished as a result, or, or what is desired to be accomplished as a result. And that's to see those who are in need of repentance, right, be brought to repentance. And that's a desire to see those of us who maybe, maybe there's not some grave, great, unrepentant sin in our life, right, but a desire nonetheless to see us sanctified. See, that's grace because we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be brought to repentance. We don't deserve to be brought to faith. We don't deserve to be sanctified. So for the pastor... For the preacher, 
for the believer, right? To seek that for another person, and that's grace because you don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. So again, grace never, never overlooks sin. So again, when, we're, when we are extending grace to others, I was actually thinking about as an example, when Randy and I went to, together for the gospel the first time, and I got pulled over three times in one trip. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say I wasn't doing anything wrong. But no, as I was pulled over three times in that trip, the first time was for, for um, driving too slow, which I don't think I was driving too slow. Everybody else was driving too fast. But the first one was driving too slow. The second time was following too close. And the third time was, he never said, it was late and we had expired tags on a rental car. Nonetheless, let's, let's look at the first two times. Maybe I was driving too slow. And if I was, right, it's, it's against the law. I mean, there are laws against driving below a certain speed on the interstate, right? And if I was following too close, there are laws um, that have to do with how close you follow. I wouldn't know what those laws are, but you just can't get too close, right? Um, the state trooper that pulled me over showed me grace, right? And, and not writing me a ticket for doing what I was doing or not doing what I should have been doing. But he didn't ignore my sin, did he? He didn't. He pulled me over. He called me out on it. And he said, what you're doing is wrong. Or what you did was, was wrong. And you can't do that and shouldn't do that. And I tell you what, I could write you a ticket, but instead I'm going to show you a little bit of grace. And I'm going to give you a warning. And I'm going to ask you to be a little bit more mindful about that. Okay? Maybe a superficial example. But nonetheless, right? Grace doesn't overlook sin. Okay? In fact, I think grace confronts unrepentant sin. Now, we said that God, we said that grace doesn't overlook sin. God in his grace, right? Now, here's where it, 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 it's, it's, it's important. God in his grace never overlooks sin. God is not only a gracious God, right? but he's also a just God. Let's look at Isaiah um, 13, 11. Thirteen eleven, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God says, I will, I will punish sin. I will punish sinners for their sin. God in his grace doesn't overlook sin. So here's the thing. Those who die in their sin, those who die apart from their sin, though they've experienced common grace in their life, Right? God will experientially punish them for their sin. Now, what about those of us, right? God has extended his saving grace to. What about our sin? 
has God overlooked our sin? No, he hasn't overlooked our sin. What did he do? He took our sin, he took the wrath that we have stored up or had stored up for our sin. He placed it upon his son and then as a result crushed him and killed him because of your sin, because of my sin. So God, in his saving grace of you and of me, right, has not overlooked my sin, has not overlooked your sin, but placed it on Jesus and killed him for it. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In our Sunday school time, right, we've been looking, just finished Isaiah 53, right? We're not going to go there. You can write it down. You can look at that again. That speaks directly to what it is we're talking about, right? God didn't overlook your sin, hasn't overlooked my sin, right? But he placed it upon his servant, Jesus, the eternal son, and crushed him, right? That you would be forgiven, that I would be forgiven of my sin, of our sin, and in fact be, cl- be declared righteous because the servant, Jesus, the Christ, is righteous. Now, we wrap all of this up. Here's the thing. When we are confronted with grace, right? In Ruth, we've been confronted with grace from, from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 2, all the way, I'm going to go there, all the way to the end of chapter 4, end of chapter 4 says this, now these are the generations of Perez, um, Perez was um, fathered, uh, fathered Haran, Haran fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, right, as in the Boaz, Ruth, Boaz, right, Boaz and Ruth, right, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered who? Jesse fathered David. And we know that if we went down the line and down the line and down the line and down the line and down the line, we'd come to Christ. God's grace began in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. It ends in chapter 4, verse 22. So as we are confronted with grace, as we study scripture, right, we can do this with any, with any book, with any passage, right? We can go there and we can see God's grace. And as we're confronted with God's grace on any level, be it as common grace when it rains after a summer drought, be it grace that someone extends to me when I get pulled over for supposedly driving too slow on an interstate, right? 
be it his saving grace that we're confronted with in Scripture as he saves, as he saved Ruth, right? As he called many others to salvation as we see it in Scripture. When we're confronted with his grace in our lives, we must always think on the greatest grace that God has shown us. That's his saving grace, right? For it is by grace you have been saved. Grace you have been saved through faith. Faith doesn't save. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is just the conduit, right? The transmitting agent, if you will, of saving grace. And this not of yourselves, but a gift. So faith, even if it could save, which it can't because grace saves, but faith is a gift nonetheless, so there's nothing for you to what? Boast or bragging. It's not by works. Not by anything that you have done, anything that you could do. Not only do we think about God's saving grace in our lives, or should we think about God's saving grace in our lives as we're confronted with grace in life, Scripture, right? But we also want to think about God's what? His sustaining grace. He saved me. If you are a believer, he has saved you. And his saving grace is utterly amazing. Not only did he save you, not only has he saved me, but in his grace, I mean, we're beyond common grace at this point as believers, but in his grace, he is sustaining us. About the Apostle Paul, right? And he's talking about this thorn in his flesh, right? We could speculate about what it is, right? His thorn in his flesh, that's for another discussion. And he says, What well, I implored God, how many times? This is in, if you want to go there, 2 Corinthians, I think like three times, right? He implored God to take this thorn away from him. What did God say? He said, Paul. My grace, not my, not my saving grace at this point, all right? He's talking about my sustaining grace. He says, Paul, my sustaining grace, my grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me, and it's sufficient for you as well. I want you to be, and I hope you are, and if you're not, I want you to be amazed by God's grace. Are you amazed by God's grace? I wake up many, and for some reason I think God has been preparing me for this, even though I didn't think about this until like two weeks ago concerning the gracious God of Ruth. But for the past several months, uh, on many occasions, I find myself waking up in the morning just amazed by God's grace. His favor that, I mean, I, I don't deserve. I mean, I deserve, I deserve his wrath. But instead of receiving his wrath, I've received his grace. And because I didn't because I didn't do anything to earn it or to deserve it, I can't do anything to lose it. You can't do anything to lose it. If God's grace, if his saving grace, if his sustaining grace rests on you, it will rest on you eternally. Be amazed by that. Be amazed by that. Cry out to him with a thankful heart, with a joyous heart. 
because of his amazing grace. Steady, what? And unchanging. Let's pray. Father God, I, I am truly amazed by your grace. I'm amazed by your common grace. If that was the only grace, Lord, that you ever extended to mankind, it would be better than what we deserve. And yet, Lord, you, you didn't just leave us with common grace, but you have extended to many saving grace. Not extended as in an invitation, but you actually brought it to bear, are bringing it to bear. And that as a result of your saving grace, you are, you will, you have saved many. You've given us in your saving grace what we don't deserve, what we could never earn. You crushed your son because of my sin, because of our sin. And in your grace now, as a result of Christ's work, when you, when you look at me, when you look at us, you no longer see our sin because it was placed on him, but you see his righteousness. And you continue, Lord, to extend us grace. And Father, I am amazed by your grace. I pray, Lord, that my amazement of your grace would never cease. Not just on this side of eternity, but on the next. I, I, I can only imagine, I can only wonder and hope, Lord, that in heaven, my amazement, Jesus, as I see you, my amazement of your grace would, would increase and would do so throughout all of eternity. Lord, if there is anyone here who is not amazed by your grace. Father, I pray that you would amaze them with your grace as you grant them repentance, as you grant them faith, and as you, Lord, save them. Jesus, you alone are worthy of all praise and all honor all adoration. Again, Lord, I ask, I pray because of you, for you. Amen.